Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays here at JM and the AM for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, happy, healthy new year. Welcome back to JM and the AM. To you too. It's good to be with you again and start off the, the new year, right? Yeah. And hopefully with good news, if we can find some. So was this Demi Lovato episode a victory for the BDS movement or not? Look, it's very strange. I know that she's had uh, personal problems. Uh, I frankly never heard of her before, but uh, I know that she is well known, and uh, she was baptized and was pictured at the Kotel, and she has tens of millions of followers. Um, and uh, I just find it very confusing. It's unclear where, where she will end up, but she clearly came under a lot of pressure because she said really spectacular things about her visit to Israel. And that is why people have to know you have to make your voices heard. You have to continue when when people tweet or send messages that we respond to them, because a lot of this is manufactured, and we have proof of it that they, in fact, even use Jewish names, uh, but it's coming from Arab sources or pro-BDS sources that are, are not the people uh, indicated on the uh, you know, on Instagram or other messages that they get, and they're able to generate uh, a number of them. And, and it's really not big numbers that are needed. It's just that if there's an immediate reaction when a, a, a athlete or a, a movie or a television star or somebody um, posts something, we have to make sure that we have as many responses there as the negative ones. It is funny, and and again, her notwithstanding, because whatever whatever the circumstances were this week with her, but the number of performers who are now going to Israel and performing in concert, and I'm talking about comedians, singers, etc. And on top of that, as you pointed out, the number of athletes, you know, all of them with major followings. They may not have millions of followers, but you get it. There's you know very significant numbers, and I don't remember anybody ever apologizing for you know uh retroactively for going to israel or or any any in fact i am shocked after this episode that there aren't more that feel that pressure that have to come out with some type of statement it does seem like the celebrities that do go come back with basically you know unabashed appreciation for israel well they have to make a decision before they go because they come under pressure but unfortunately it's not as rare as, as that, that people don't, you know, make apologetic comments. It's not necessarily saying, you know, that they're sorry so much as... Um, Qualifying it. You know, exactly. You know, trying to to hedge their bet and sound like they're on both sides of the issue, which they end up being. But this is, uh, this, this is the success of the BDS movement, where we see the success of the BDS movement manifest mostly. And again, it's individuals. You see the number of concerts in Israel is, is increasing, and yeah. more and more stars are in fact going. And there is a backlash, a positive backlash in the sense that, that um, uh, more of those in, uh, more influentials are making their voice heard. Last week, you and I spoke about anti-Semitism more in the context of, you know, we're all gathering in, in major places uh, for the holidays, and obviously we want safety and security, etc. But that these, and excuse the term, but these smaller news items, again, nothing is, is, is too minimum to discuss or to be worried about. But these smaller news items from around the world about how Jewish students are being treated in different schools at all levels, by the way, not just colleges, uh, younger than that as well. 
and things that are happening on subways and and public areas uh, in general. You heard what happened in terms of the attack uh, on the physical building of the shul in Brooklyn over mm-hmm. Yom Tif. I mean, I wonder, you know, sometimes people point out to me, you know, Nahum, that th- this is no different than it's always been. Just today we hear everything and, you know, every little detail about every encounter between, you know, Jew and non-Jew or Jew and anti-Semite is, is now publicized. And I wonder how much of that is true and how much, how much is a real increase in all of this over the last couple of years. Well, both things are true. There is a sharp increase. There's an 80% increase in hate crimes in New York City. A part of that is people reporting, and still half of the incidents go unreported, and people are reluctant to to put their name and file the complaint that is really essential so that we get a true picture and we get the protection that is is required. Uh, People don't tell the police or don't mention it. Then. But by, the, by the way, you, as you say this, I'm saying to myself, there was no video of that shul. You're probably right. Nobody ever would have gone to the police. And the, that's, so that's one. Two, um, and the greater awareness. Uh, it is true that there were always incidents, and especially around the high holidays, and it's very visible. That's why you have had increased police department protection for years, going back to Ray Kelly and to, um, in, in New York, at least, and in other parts of the country. But, you know, there are contradictory trends that we see. One, something that I noticed and I you know, thought about afterwards, that it's really more remarkable than we think, that many countries issued Rosh Hashanah greetings this year, including the Saudi ambassador in Washington, hmm. the UAE foreign minister, Egypt, Morocco, um, even the Iranians issued a statement in Farsi and Hebrew addressed to the Jewish communities worldwide, and another one addressed. It's not because there's a change of heart there or anything. This is, a, you know, it's a propaganda move. But the very fact that so many countries from India to the Europeans, et cetera, issued official statements at the same time that we see a, a center party in, in Sweden introducing anti-Rismila legislation, uh, which now the head of the party has backed off and said apologize for, regretted, um, but it's a very contradictory period where you see trends in both ways, more public pronouncements by officials against anti-Semitism, taking a stand, demanding more action. Serbia, I just got a notice this morning from the Serbian government that they're going to hold a regional conclave on anti-Semitism and want me to speak in, our, uh, the, in Stockholm and Malmo planning next year an international gathering about anti-Semitism, and not just couching it in terms of racism, but specifically these pronouncements and initiatives, educational, other kind of initiatives, are focusing on specifically on anti-Semitism. But the numbers are definitely sharply up, and it's in every sector, on campus and business, in political discourse. You see the the comments about Jimmy Down and et cetera that yeah. are unrepentant about those uh, those comments. And it's funny because, and, and and this may be really a good example of what you just described because, in one way, we see countries some of whom never wanted to have a relationship with Israel, you know, at the feet of Israeli leadership. We've described that scene, you know, countless times here over the last year, and at the same time. What what's really going on in their minds? They'd really prefer not to be here. They'd really prefer not to have anything to do with Israel. But they, you know, honestly feel there's no choice at this point. So the Russia Shana greetings and the 
you know, and the silence when anti-Semitic episodes occur really could be just a, a further example of that. Look, we shouldn't overemphasize the, the significance. Uh, I mean, it is a gesture that what they did at UAE with the announcement of the synagogue, mosque, uh, and church being built in uh, Dubai, in Abu Dhabi. Um, you know, so these are in individual places. You you might have these, but in but in Europe and in uh, um, in the United States to ignore and and other countries too we see it in South America obviously we see it in some uh, the Asian countries uh, we ignore this at our own peril the reality and and it's too easy to, to close our eyes to it and to just to, to, to seek out good news I believe you don't ignore it when and when those who take a positive stand we have to compliment and, re- and acknowledge them as well but the overall situation and, and our numbers continue to, to demonstrate. And, and I think one of the things that, that was interesting during this past week of U.N. meetings, and we had many, many, is how, uh, as that virtually every leader acknowledges the problem, and the problem in their own country, as well as the overall increase in anti-Semitism, there is a, a, a general recognition uh, of the existence of the problem, not this, the, the denial that we saw till now, and you know how many years I've talked about it, um, and people wanted to just brush it under the rug, including Jews. But today I think there's much more of a willingness to confront it and to, to, to look for solutions and even legislative and other initiatives. Well, those officials are desperate for you to know that they're dealing with it, or at least that they're acknowledging it and you know it's on their on their agenda, so to speak. Exactly. But you look, you look, see, we had problems again. The Labor Party in Great Britain uh, on Monday met and they called for a, a future government led by Corbyn to boycott, to back a boycott of Israeli settlement goods and vowed to stop any trade agreements that don't recognize the rights of the Palestinians and uh, endorse the Palestinian right of return, et cetera. So, you know, the, and the, obviously there were incidents. We, we saw the, physical assaults here in Brooklyn and, and in New York City, but I mean, I asked much you, more I, in other places. I asked you this last week a little bit differently. Do you, do you think that the the hesitation that some law enforcement officials have to deal with things, especially these quote-unquote smaller crimes, and trust me, I know they're not small, but you get what I mean, uh, it could have something to do with it? Because really across the country, I don't think it's just New York, I think really around the country, you know, po- police officers hesitate a bit more than they used to when it comes to things like this. Well, they may hesitate because of some of the lawsuits and actions, you know, that, that they're reluctant to, um, uh, but it's not a reluctance to, to, to pursue the incidents because they're the brass and the leadership, uh, O'Neill and others certainly have been very forthright and, and speaking about it. And they convened, uh, meetings in different boroughs and, and citywide to, to talk about it and encourage people to file. One of the reasons people, um, police departments were hesitant because once you call it a hate crime, it goes into the statistics of hate crimes, which certainly don't reflect well on, on the department. And secondly, it brings the FBI in, yeah. which they're also not happy about. Right. Local, uh, local authorities would prefer not to have the feds in town. Um, uh, lastly, on this topic, does all this that we just discussed, uh, attitude of countries and world leaders toward Israel, and of course, uh, on a more local level uh, episode, etc., has any of this changed? Because I think you did indicate months ago that you were worried about this. 
change the general attitude of a U.S. Congress toward Israel and the Jewish community? Well, first of all, you know, the, the polls that show that Jews uh, are the most popular of all the religious groups, a point or two ahead of Protestants and Catholics, um, that the uh, certainly the mood in Congress where we have outed those who have engaged in, in, in anti-Semitic comments or, or rhetoric or orientations, and I think, you know, there is a... Um, a greater willingness and action uh, orientation on the part of members of Congress, because they too they too acknowledge it and recognize uh, what is happening. So it it is not, um, it, it, but but we also see people around the country who are running, who are associated with extreme left, extreme right parties, or we see the what's going on in the mosques. We see the in in, in many parts in America, and we see what's happening in um, other communities where anti-Semitism is tolerated and, and even today growing. And, and uh, I think that, that it, it puts the onus on us to, be, to be, make people aware and to do it, but it puts the onus on them. It's, it's not we who are responsible. We're the victims. It's mm-hmm. got to really be the onus put on those who are the influentials. That means law enforcement, judges to really sentence people seriously when they commit hate crimes. Uh, um, it, it's the educational system, which is not doing enough to, to educate people. Uh, the latest statistics about the uh, knowledge about the Holocaust is is horrendous. Um, I mean, the, the fa- failure of people to, to know here and in Europe, by the way, um, that a quarter didn't know what the Holocaust was, and, and in some countries, even higher numbers. Uh, so th- th- there is much to be done. We all have, have a lot to do. Uh, vigilance is critical, but a willingness to, to respond. And people always ask me what to do. When you hear somebody make or you see a television report that's inaccurate uh, or when a person like the, this uh, movie, this singer, um, does this and you, you respond online and it doesn't, you don't have to leave your house to do it, that really does matter. And the friends we've always had in Congress, they are still our friends. They are still our friends, some, yes. But even some of them sometimes need to be reminded and and encouraged and helped. And when people stand up for us, we stand up for them. Some of them are facing tough battles in the next congressional election. Some of them will. And, again, people have to look into it, know who, who is running, what their positions are. Invite them to communities, to synagogues, so you really get the truth out of them. Look, we have many people, you know, who love us every November, and then in the interim periods, six every uh, six years or two years, um, do not necessarily sustain that those positions. They forget how much they love us. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, on the web, and AchimSegal.com, and the AchimSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Any update in the last seven days since we spoke last Friday regarding the Israeli election and the formation of an Israeli government? Yes, there's uh, there are things every few minutes. The uh, the Amina party today is going to split up. You see the that Lapid said he doesn't want to be in rotation. Um, that uh, Bibi introduced the idea that he would have a snap 
election for chair for the leadership of of Likud, from which he has backed off, and then he portrayed it as uh, as having exposed a, a plot against him. Sar Gidon Sar announced when he made the announcement that he would hold the uh, um, a vote on the leadership that he would run against Netanyahu. Netanyahu now backed off of it and said he's he, he's not going to do it, but I think he feels secure that his leadership will be sustained. The um, the, he was given the mandate uh, to by by the president. The reports that he would give it back already right after Rosh Hashanah. So far, he hasn't, but he's obviously been tied up for the last two days already in in very long eleven hour sessions of the pre indictment hearings. Uh, yesterday, I understand went well better for him the first day, not as well. Um, but he has a lot of information that he wants to put forward, which he thinks will mitigate the charges. And hopefully he hopes that the attorney general will either drop them or maybe drop some of them. Uh, and if especially the, the bribery charge, which is obviously the most serious uh, charge you make against a public official. Uh, so <laughs> there's things happening every few minutes. Uh, people are confused. People are waiting to see if something breaks. Right now, there's more talk of going to a third election. What's the more likelihood? Will he form this government? Or would you call it 50-50? Is it going to be another election? What's the most likely uh, scenario? I don't see where the government from right now that the um, uh, that there will be a, a, a coalition that is going to be able to to um, have a majority, have the 61 seats. Uh, Lieberman is holding meetings or met with Netanyahu and met with Khan, so we'll see maybe something there will break and they'll work out some sort of an acceptable rotation system. Netanyahu certainly needs the first year of this agreement to be the, there's a talk of giving Likud the first and fourth year, which many people would believe won't happen the fourth year. Um, and others are saying that that uh, blue and white is saying they want the first uh, period, and uh, you know transition governments, meaning where you you have a coalition but you're splitting it. Uh, in the past, you, these so-called unity governments haven't always proven to be effective or as democratic because you don't really have an opposition anymore in the Knesset. Yeah, you mentioned that last week also, and I was wondering about that because. I know there's no opposition, but isn't there always the threat of a breakaway? Isn't there always a threat of a dissolving of the government, especially? Always, no matter what, the coalition, but in, in absolute terms, in terms of having the 61 votes or right. the votes to and, defeat And the it. truth is a larger party should probably hesitate to do that anyway. Yes, because they have a lot at stake, and they right. know the people are tired. They don't want another election, and they will blame a party if they are responsible, and they could blame them at the uh, polls. You know, going to a um, a second election was a miscalculation on his part. I wonder if now going to a Likud leadership uh, poll, uh, which, again, I mean, the way you're describing it, it sounds like we're not sure if that's really going to happen or not, but I wonder if that would be a calculation. No, it's not. It's, it's off for now. Oh, so there's no no reason to discuss a calculated mistake. It's a 0% chance of it happening. Right now, he he is officially pulled back from it. Um. So this, I mean, I, the, the article that I saw was published on Rosh Hashanah, so I didn't know it last Friday, although the, the news may have broken before that. Apparently this Rouhani-Trump uh, meeting was a lot closer to happening than not happening with the help of the Macron president. Macron came to his hotel room, had set it up. They had a, sec- a secure room. Now, he would not have done that without Trump's permission, correct? 
It's not like uh, right. Okay. And the anticipation that Trump would be on the other line, right. in the line, and at least these are the reports. They haven't officially, I think, confirmed uh, by the White House, but the indication is that that uh, and Rouhani would not leave the room. That, those are the reports that are circulating. Again, we know that there's a tendency today that everything gets um, put out as a fact. And Who looks the worst? Exactly what it was. Which of the three looks the worst in this story? <laughs> he looks pretty bad, Macron. That he, you know, he pulls well, himself. Macron, you know, looks like he was so anxious. He's so over anxious to make a deal, and and you know, he offered the fifteen billion dollar bailout. Of the, he, he did many things, none of which I believe he can actually deliver on. And he was trying to set up this call. And I think the president simply said, well, if he wants to talk to me, I'll talk to him, but didn't go to meet him. Didn't, um, and then uh, Rouhani wouldn't leave his hotel room to, to, to do the call. So, and, and in the meantime, we see that Iran is taking more and more aggressive steps. Uh, we see the, the, um, the increasing danger that they pose. And many uh, IDF people, the head of the, the military intelligence uh, research department, talked about the much more complex uh, reality than um, than existed before. And the, the confirmation that they have missile c- cities um, coming, uh, IRGC people acknowledging that they have underground facilities for missiles in various locations we, we believe as many as 10. Including Syria or just in Iran? No, just in Iran, that were dug already going back into the 80s when they were anticipating having the missiles, and that they now store ammunition and um, missile launching bases and stockpile the missiles inside Iran in the ma- mountain range that they, that they already, uh, I mean, say it and acknowledge it. And, and they see it also entrenching itself in the in the Middle East, with having uh, and boasting of the various uh, front groups that they have now working for them, whether it's in Yemen or Hezbollah or um, uh, in Iran or um, Yemen, and uh, uh, I think that I say Hamas, Hezbollah, the Syrian uh, front. Yeah, I mean they're th- all part of Iran, and, I'm and, sorry. and therefore saying that they have the capacity to respond to to an attack, but also the increased number of missiles and the the spread of their uh, facilities in various places throughout the Middle East, and and they talking more openly now. Some of that is bravado to counter because the fact that Israel has been acting at will virtually against the shipment of missiles, etc. But we know that they are getting these kits to upgrade the missiles in Lebanon into Lebanon, and. Um, and Israel's upgrading its missile defense system, seeing what happened in Saudi Arabia. So it's, a, it, you know, Iran is is quietly moving ahead, entrenching itself in Syria. We know that they have the, um, more tools at, at their uh, uh, advantage, meaning that they have front groups along the Golan, the the uh, Shiite militias who wear Syrian army uniforms but are moving closer and closer to the border of Israel on the Golan. Israel's aware of it, and it's something that they can't tolerate. They have taken some actions against it.
Now, I mean, this carte blanche that seems Syria is giving Iran, right? I think you'd consider it carte blanche the way they're moving in and taking over. Well, they don't have a choice because they, they team up the militias with uh, some of the other groups and sometimes even with the Syrian army. Um, but they're not in a position really to take them on. The Russians uh, are not happy about it. And the hope was that they would also set the rules to to um, limit it. So you can't say that Syrian cooperation shows us the true intention of Syria, which is, you know, essentially, God forbid, you know, starting up with Israel. Just because Iran has the run of the place, we shouldn't think that this is uh, something that Syria could control. They, they have the run of the place, because as you just described, Syria has no choice. They can't control it. Um. Well, Syria alone can't control them, but they do. They are gaining more and more control over the country, which pits them in some places against, for instance, Hezbollah and others. It's interesting that Nasrallah acknowledged in a speech that he did not want to go into the war in Syria, but that the Iranians forced him. The um, um, and, and the more public positions, I think, are interesting. But the opening of the second front, meaning, and they talk openly that they have. Israel surrounded from three sides and seek a fourth. That is Gaza, Hezbollah, and Syria, and increasingly their their presence in Iraq. And that's why people should understand the importance of the Jordan Valley. They're Go not, and they're, look at the map. They're that not even is the barrier against an incursion coming from uh, Jordan. And with the increasing presence of Iran in Iraq and the use of it as a base, and Israel's hit some of those bases, there are demonstrations now very much going on across the country against the government in Iraq. This is one of the issues. They do not want to uh, be involved in a war, and they want – there have been calls, including by um, uh, Sadr, the religious leader, to get Iranian militias out of Iraq. And it is there are a lot of these things that are going on that hardly get any press or any press at all. Um, and the, the you know they have Iran, Hezbollah now has four permanent bases in southwest Syria. They train local fighters. They store the missiles there. One base in Kunetra is three miles from the Israeli border, and uh, they have intelligence gathering there. They have um, the, it, a, a position of the Syrian army's 90th brigade is there. And they can eavesdrop on Israel and on Israeli forces, and, and you have UNIFIL 200 meters away, and they're doing nothing about it. Now, so so the three fronts does not even include Lebanon? That's... Yes, it does. Hezbollah is Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza. It does not include the Jordanian side. Um, oh, because you mentioned Iraq before, but that's not considered a front. That's... Well, it, it, it is increasingly a front because of the increasing presence of, of Iranian militias there and using it as a base and moving some of the storage stuff from Syria into Iraq because they thought it would be protected. But obviously it's come under... Right. Uh, but, 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 but you know that the Iran Revolutionary Guard, is it's estimated they have uh, 40 different military facilities in Syria with their own headquarters, drone control s- systems and training centers, and, and at least a third deployed to target Israel. And this is coming from Israeli defense officials. So even if the Iranians aren't visible because they're using Syrian military uniforms, their presence is is uh, expanded. They have more than 100 Shiite militias working for them across the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, and, and the real story, of course, you know, in terms of this analysis is that 
Now they are literally sitting on the border. I know it's 2019, and you don't always have to be on the border to start attacks or to you know make a military impression, so to speak. But the fact that they are literally on the border with Israel now is, is very significant. Plus, on the Gaza side, and I don't know if this makes sense, you'll tell me, but as El Sisi is so much more preoccupied with the protests within his own country, uh, the efforts that he used to make in terms of uh, trying to quell Hamas and deal with that border would probably be less and less at this point, right? Uh, actually, no. Uh, I think that he has remained singly focused on that, and uh, he has taken, I don't think demonstrations have reached a point, I think he has to take preventative measures, and he's concerned that it not spread further. But for him, the you know the growth of Al Qaeda. We know that they are in the in the Sinai again, uh, as well as in other places, moving into Syria, and that's a whole other analysis. Um, you know, and despite all the the talk about the, the that it was dead, the United States sees a growing threat from Al Qaeda in uh, Syria, which has about two thousand fighters. About half of them are foreign terrorists uh, operating in, in, in northwest Syria. And uh, the, the Russian air defense really protect them from American strikes. America continues to go after them in other areas, uh, ISIS and um, uh, uh, groups. So al-Qaeda is still alive and functioning in different places. CC is, is focused on his economy primarily, trying to because that's that is the critical issue for him and and the key to survival of his government. Uh, the weapon smuggling episode from Lebanon to Israel, uh, and this is simply a buildup of the Hezbollah forces up there, I assume, right? Yes, another manifestation, but thank God it was caught, Right, and is, the ring has been broken. Israel caught that. And the Russian journalist who was arrested in Iran and accused of spying for Israel, where does that case hold at the moment? Uh, well, he's arrested, he's being held, and we'll have to see. But, you know, they, they, they arrest people who write things critical of them, uh, and sometimes it's... A political message to the government of the country from which they come, uh, whether Israel would recruit a Russian reporter to work for him is, is uh, questionable, but not impossible. Obviously, Israel has tremendous intelligence. Not impossible. I would think it's likely. <laughs> no. Well, I don't want to <laughs> yeah, get this guy in more trouble than he is. <laughs> God, <laughs> you know, they're listening, and you never know what they're... Yeah, these days, you never know. That's for sure. It, um, the, um, let's see here, uh, Russian journalist I asked you about, and I'm oh yeah, the, uh, so the Iranian official who, who earlier in the week said that Iran has the capability to annihilate Israel and whether that was a threat on Israel or not, I guess we could debate. It's a shame that the United Nations was still not convening because you know, they would have gotten together, I'm sure, and condemned the statement. Am I right? It would have been an instant response, overwhelmingly, where they would respond to what uh, the head of the Iran uh, Revolutionary Guard commander, Salami, is his name, by the way. It should be Baloney, <laughs> but he, uh, or other things, um, he just said that this regime has to be wiped off the map. He talked about annihilation, saying they have the capacity, um, and that uh, this, and he said the second step of the revolution is the step that rearranges the constellation of power in favor of the revolution, meaning Iran's Islamic revolution. Uh, he said that will be on top. And then the second part is thinking of the global mobilization of Islam, which shows that their, their desire is not just local hegemony, but worldwide. 
And, uh, of course, Arif came and denied that uh, any leader ever threatened Israel when the words are still in their mouths and and coming out. And, uh, you know, um, this IRGC commander for operations, uh, Nilfa Roshan, said that, that Israel is surrounded today on all sides, east, west, north, south. And uh, it's a sign of Israel's downfall have become obvious, and it lacks strategic depth anymore. Uh, you know, it's funny we haven't, I mean, the truth is with the Israeli election aftermath, I guess that would be, you know, the most uh, realistic excuse or the the most obvious reason for it. We haven't heard a word about the peace plan. I know there's a Greenblatt departure coming from the White House. Obviously, the president has a lot more to deal with now because there's a whole impeachment situation going on. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even know if anyone cares at this point that, you know, it hasn't been revealed. Should we just assume that in 2019 we're not going to see any type of proposal from the White House? Look, I think as long as the Israeli government is not settled, they're not going to issue it. They were prepared to do it after the election, but because we have no after the election yet, mm. and um, if especially it goes into another election, you also have Abbas rejecting it and coming to the United Nations and rejecting it. So if the parties themselves are not in a position to really address it, and I do believe that the intention is to put it out, and it is it is a document that is ready to be uh, to be put out, and of course it'll be criticized by everybody. All sides will find it unacceptable, uh, but you have to have the right timing to to release it at a time when it's going to fall flat, and governments not be in a position to really respond, and with the um, unstable situation in Israel, people are going to be reluctant, the leaders will be reluctant to identify too much with it if, it if it doesn't enjoy the support of the people. So right now it's not an ideal time to release it. It's better to do it at the right time uh, than rush it. There's nothing immediate that is going to benefit from uh, the release of the document uh, uh, now rather than a month from now. And It's waited this long. I guess it can wait a little while longer till we see if the Israeli thing clarifies. I was thinking about you on Rosh Hashanah, and it's a, Thank good, you. it's a good thing to mention, I think, before Yom Kippur as well. You know, it's not just individuals and families that are judged this time of year. Nations are judged this time of year. And God makes a decision whether they will flourish or whether they will collapse or, you know, somewhere in between over the next year. And sometimes we forget that. We forget that the, the we, we always think the fate of the uh, Jewish people is in the... Uh, a military strength of Israel, which can, which should uh, please God continue uh, to be as strong as ever. And, of course, on the other side, uh, the force and intention of the enemy. But we also have to remember that the one above has a lot in terms of controlling that. Absolutely. And nations are judged. And the uh, hopefully the increased sanctions and the other things that have been announced will yeah. uh, impact. And that the evil forces that are abound in the world... Uh, will be eradicated this year. People who are should be our natural allies, and I'm thinking obviously mo- primarily of the European countries, natural allies in this battle can't get on board with the U.S. when it comes to you know a certain level of sanctions. But they don't protect their own interests. This is what's so ludicrous. Right, right. Uh, and I know it underpins what you're saying, that that their own interests, they don't stand up for their own people. They don't take steps that that will assure that they can fight uh, evil forces. We see the increasing activities in Europe that the uh, influx of people who who are working against it and radicalized populations. The the you know in France you see the the number of mosques that become uh, that are taking over churches and the the collapse of the societal factors. 
I mean, you're right. It's very hard to understand sometimes when they don't think of their own self-interest and not doing it for us. Just do it for yourself. And, and we don't see it. And now I, I, one of the things that I saw on the part of, of the governments and, and um, is growing awareness that, you know, their, their communities, their societies, it's not just targeted anti-Semitists may target Jews, but everybody pays the price for it. And, and I think that more and more of them are, are coming to some recognition of the importance of, of uh, dealing with uh, anti-Semitism, at least containing it, and uh, whether they're embarrassed about it and don't want to see the statistics out there, but they they uh, recognize, um, I mean, almost every leader that we met emphasized and talked about the steps they're taking and their concern about the increased radicalization and, and um, extremist views uh, um, expressed as anti-Semitism. Malcolm, an easy fast, and uh, let's hope that the the good people are judged favorably this year. A meaningful fast to you and to everyone, and one that we um, that our tefillah should be received, and that the uh, those who preceded us who are judged will be judged favorably, and those who will follow us will benefit from our recognitions and coming to terms. And this is a great opportunity to think and the long day of Yom Kippur about what more each of us can do to make a difference. Yeah, no question about that. Amen to that. Have a wonderful Shabbos and an easy fast. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Our weekly update schedule for the remainder of October, and specifically in terms of the shows just before Sukkot and during Cholomoid, we will announce uh, during the week as soon as that's clear. Obviously, um, uh, once Shabbos Bracious arrives, once uh, Simchas Torah ends, we will be back on a completely regular schedule, please God, and uh, feature the weekly update every Friday starting at 7.40 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.